Father, we ask you to speak to us from your word. Lord, you've already been speaking to us. And what you've said has, well, Lord, I know it's lightened me. Lord, it's just helped me to see yet again that it's, Lord, it's not what I have to do for you. It's what you've already done for me. Uh, Father, I just pray that, <clears throat> that you'll just encourage our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Right, and now, as they say, for something completely different. I have never done a Christmas special here, but um, I thought that this year a Christmas special might be appropriate. Now, I know that you're used to what you might call some pretty heavy teaching when I come here. Well, today, because it's Christmas, I'm going to lighten it a little bit. There's still a word from the Lord in, but, uh, you know, festive season. And there's, you know, sort of a way that I want to illustrate one of the things that I think the Lord might want to be saying to us tonight to remind us of. Now then, it's Christmas, and one of the features of Christmas is the trip to the pantomime and all the fairy stories. So therefore, for the first time, a world premiere at a Christian meeting, may I tell you the story of Prinderella and the Sins. Now, once upon a time, there was a Higbouse, and in it lived a young girl called Prinderella. Now, she lived there with her sticky wet mother and her two sub-easters. <laughs> now, one day, one day, the lips of the Prand decided to hold a Drancy Fest ball. And he sent invitations to everyone in the land. Well, eventually, the invitations came to the Hig Bouse. And there was an invitation for Sticky Wet Mother. And there were invitations for the two Sugliistas. But there was no invitation for poor Prinderella. And she fat by the sire all on <laughs> Then suddenly there was a lash of frightening. <laughs> and a little old lady stood in the room. Who are you? cried Prinderella. Oh, said the old lady, I'm your Gary Fodmother. <laughs> now Prinderella said, Oh Gary Fodmother, I want to go to the Trancy Festival. <laughs> And the Gary Ford mother said, then you shall. But Prinderella said, how can I go to the Drancy Fest ball? I haven't anything to wear. All I've got is this scurzy old dirt. <laughs> <laughs> then the Gary Ford mother said, fetch me six white Mike Weiss and a company. Now she waved for Wadjik Mond. The six Mike Weiss turned into six height waltzes and the company turned into a poach. <laughs> and Prinderella's skirty old fur turned into the most dutiful breasts you have ever seen. <laughs> she climbed into the poach and off she went. But as she was leaving, the Gary Fogmother cried out, Prinderella, don't forget to be back by the moke of Stridnight. Or <laughs> <laughs> your beautiful breast will turn back into your dirty, skirty old dirt. And the six white horses will turn back into six mite rice. And the poach will turn back into a company. So off she went to the Drancy Festival. As soon as she arrived, the lynx of the prang saw her. Oh, he said, what a gritty pearl. <laughs> She is the grittiest pearl at the whole ball. <laughs> so Prinderella pranced with the dints all night. <laughs> Suddenly, ping, pong, it was the mocha street night. Prinderella fled from the Drancy Fest ball and as she ran down the Stalis peps, she slopped her dripper. <laughs> <laughs> the prince ran out and he slicked up the pippa. <laughs> Whoever this flipper sits, he said, 
I'm Ilwari. The next day, he sent messengers to every louse in the hand. And soon, they arrived at the Higbats. Anyway, the sticky wet mother snared the tripper, but it didn't bit. And the two Sagriistas slide the tripper, and it still didn't bit. But then, Cringarella slide the tripper, and it fitted it. So, Cringarella parried the mints, and they all lived happily ever after. Now then, there's a point to that. But before I do, can I have a glass of water? Please? <laughs> <laughs> Let me just grab my water. <laughs> now then, I enjoyed selling that, but there is a point. And the point is this. You see, the reason that that is so funny is because I've played around with the words. And if you play around with the words, you change their meaning. Now, an awful lot of this goes on in the world today. Words are a very, very powerful thing. And the reason that words are so powerful is because in the beginning was the Word. God is a God who expresses himself, a God who speaks. Therefore, we, in the likeness of our God, can also speak. But what we communicate affects each of the people that we speak to, and words have a great power. Now, if you change words slightly, you change the meaning. I'll give you an example. Today, it is not popular to talk about adultery. But if you say somebody's having an affair, can you see the difference? Because adultery is a word that has a connotation of wrongness, of sin. It's a moral word. Whereas affair, which means exactly the same thing, and we all know what it means, is simply a statement of fact. In fact, there's something glamorous about it. Today, we don't fornicate. We have sex before marriage. Well, we don't, but you know what I mean. Because fornication is a word that has a connotation of guilt, and quite rightly too. So we talk about sex outside of marriage, and somehow the blow is softened. Now, think with me how this effect has happened in regards to Christmas. Because if you look on a lot of cards, and particularly in adverts in shops, it's no longer Merry Christmas, it's Merry Xmas. Now, the word has changed. This is more and more creeping into the vocabulary. But if you say Merry Xmas, or send a card with Merry Xmas, everyone knows what you mean, but somehow the meaning has slightly changed. With Xmas, you have Christmas, but with Christ crossed out. Christmas means the celebration of Christ and his coming. And yet today we talk about Xmas. Christ has been crossed out. Now it's interesting. X is a symbol, a visual symbol that has lots of meanings. And one of the meanings, and we're going to go through other meanings that it has, but one of the meanings it has is X, the unknown. In maths, X is that unknown factor that you're trying to find out what it is. So X means the unknown. Now, one of the groups that are all the rage at the moment, don't ask me why, probably because they're so disgusting, is a group called Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Now, I was reading an article about them the other day, and they were asked about Christmas, what they think it's all about. And one of them said this, nobody really knows what it's about anymore. They just go out and get drunk, don't they? Now, we would feel a pain for the bloke who said that, wouldn't we? I do. I don't so much feel moral outrage at him as, as I feel sorry for him. But the point is that what he says is absolutely true. Alright, people by and large do not any longer know what Christmas is about. Xmas has become the unknown, the celebration of that which is unknown. Now, if we go back into the scriptures, remember when Paul went to Athens, I think it was, that he came across a statue, a monument to the unknown God. 
Can you see, nothing changes throughout history. It's just that in the past you were more likely to find that the X would be something religious, whereas today it's more in terms of materialism and getting drunk, etc., etc. But the point is that Christmas is no one knows anymore what it's about. Now what I want to do tonight is to speak about what Christmas is about. Very, very basic, nothing particularly heavy at all, but I hope it's something that will be helpful. And there are two reasons for this. Firstly, to remind ourselves, we've got Christmas coming upon us. So it's always good for us to remind ourselves what it's about. But also it's good for us to have a refresher as to how we can speak to people who don't know what it's about so we can communicate to them in an intelligible way. Obviously, it goes without saying that Christmas will mean something more to us than to people who aren't Christians. But the point is, there's no way for them to know what the difference is if we don't actually tell them. Now, it's always best if you want to communicate with people to start where they are. When Paul was in Athens, I think it was, and he found this monument to the unknown God. What he did is he wanted to communicate to them that God is knowable because of Jesus. And when he preached to them, he began where they were. And he said, look, I see that you have an altar to an unknown God. And he says, this is good, basically, this is terrific. And then he goes on to say, but however, this God whom you don't know, I do know. And I want to tell you how you can know him as well. And then, amazingly, Paul went on to quote their own poets. He began exactly where the people were in their thinking. Therefore, in, as we speak to people about Christmas, any chance we get, it's good to start where they are. Now, to the world, Christmas is Xmas. X equals the unknown. So let's start where they are with X. And let's go through the other meanings that X has. As we do so, we'll discover all that Christmas is about. Now then, firstly, one use of X. If you get a letter, and at the bottom you've got lots of little X's, what does that mean? It's a kiss. A kiss. It means, I love you. I love you. Now, before anything else, and above anything else, Christmas is God saying, I love you. John 3.16, as basic as you can get, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Two things to note from that verse. First of all, God gave his only begotten son. When did that happen? It did not happen on the cross. John 3.16 is not primarily talking about the cross. It's talking about the birth of Jesus. Jesus was God's gift to us, not the cross. The cross was the means whereby Jesus could accomplish what needed to be done. But God's gift to us was Jesus. And he came to us when... He was born. So Christmas verse, not an Easter verse. Also, mark as well that God so loved the world. The Bible does not say God so loved those people whom he in his foreknowledge knew were going to be converted and become Christians. It doesn't say that. It says God so loved the world. There is nothing exclusive about God's love. Even though Obviously, Jesus himself said that few there be that find that way. Though few there be who actually come in to receive that love of God and respond to it, the fact remains that the Bible teaches so very clearly that God's love in sending Jesus was upon all men, upon everyone. It was absolutely general. Salvation is wide open. Whomsoever will come, is what the Bible teaches. That love is not for any special group of people. It's not just for the church. That love is to all men. God in Christmas, in Jesus' birth, is saying to the world, not just the church, but to the world, I love you. It's to everyone. Because we're human beings, 
and we tend to have limits that God doesn't have. We tend to get caught in extremes. For instance, we tend to veer between individualism and mindlessness. For instance, if you get people who really emphasise the importance of the individual, they very often end up out of balance and that no one can tell them anything at all. And yet, on the other hand, you get other people who quite rightly emphasise that right society is individuals, but it's a corporate mass as well. And very often they veer off to the side of mindlessness and following the herd. Bureaucracy, autocracy, all these kinds of things. Now, God is perfectly balanced, and we need to be as well. Because God's love, yes, is for the whole world. But notice in Galatians 2.20, Paul praises the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you see that? It's individual as well. And that balance must always be held. Christmas, the birth of Jesus, is God saying to the whole world, I love you. But when God says to the whole world, I love you, what he is saying is, I love you to each individual person. And because God is infinite, because God is sovereign, God can love each one of us individually as though we were the only person in the world, and yet without compromising his love for the other people who are in the world. That is just the power of God. We can't conceive of that, but that is the way that God is. It is God saying in every way, I love you. If you turn with me to Philippians, Philippians <coughs> chapter 2. There are some very famous verses here, but somehow in our minds we don't always tie them up with Christmas. I'm going to start reading from verse 1, Philippians 2 verse 1. <clears throat> so, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, now see that the context of this passage is bringing out participation and incentive in love. Any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfishness. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own, but also to the interests of others. And then verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which you have in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Now, get a picture of what we're talking about here. Now, it goes on to speak about Jesus becoming a servant, and him being crucified, and then highly exalted. But this point of the verse, can you see, it's a Christmas verse. And what this Christmas verse is all about, in the Greek, what you would have literally is, th is this. Have this mind among you, in Christ, says, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And it's a taking on a new mode of existence in human form. Now that is literally what comes across in the Greek. You see, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, has always been. There was never a time when the second person of the Trinity did not exist. God is three in one. God is eternal. And at Christmas what we have is the second person of the Trinity becoming a man. Leaving the safety and the security and the glory of heaven and emptying himself and becoming a man. And how do we become men? Born as babies with the exception of Adam and Eve. Everyone else is born as babies, and this exactly happened to Jesus. Now, a lot of people debate about what this verse means, that Jesus emptied himself. Here we have the second person of the Trinity coming down from heaven and becoming a man. This is a Christmas verse. And what does it mean that he emptied himself? And there are various theories. Uh, for instance, some people say that what happened was that he laid aside his divine attributes. And he became an ordinary man, so he, you know, he wasn't actually God for the duration. He laid his Godhead aside. Some people say he laid his ability to work miracles aside, he laid his omniscience aside. And there are all lots of things that Jesus emptied himself of these various things. But 
I don't think that's the truth of what the verse is actually saying. Because we're not told here that he emptied himself of anything. We're told that he emptied himself. Now, if you come down to verse 17, there's a clue here. Because Paul, at the time that he writes the letter here, is anticipating that very soon he's going to be killed by the Romans. He is under the impression that he's at the end of his life. And in verse 17 he says, Even if I am to be poured as a libation upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. So Paul talks about poured as a libation. Now a libation was an offering of drink. You'll remember in the Old Testament there was an occasion when King David was thirsty and his men, at great risk to their own lives, got him to water. And they said, here you are. And David refused to drink it because they'd risked their lives to get that water for him. And he poured it out to the Lord. He sacrificed it to the Lord. And one of the sacrifices in the Old Testament was having a liquid that was valuable and you sacrifice it by pouring it out to the Lord. You empty the cup as a sacrifice. Now, this is exactly what Jesus did. He poured himself out for us. Can you see he came down from heaven? He took the same form as you and I. He totally, 100%, sacrificed himself for us. Now, it will be a mistake to think that the sacrifice of Jesus was on the cross. Of course, that was a great sacrifice. But also, the sacrifice began when Jesus became a man. There's no way we can understand what this could mean for him. He is God. And he was in the full form of the Godhead. And yet, because of his love, he took on a new mode of existence. And the second person of the Trinity became a man for you and I. This is the measure of the love that God has for us. And this is what is stamped all over Christmas. Now we read about when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and announces that she's going to have a son while she was still a virgin. Now it's important for us to get this symbolism. Remember I'm saying that the first thing that Christmas is shot through with God saying to everyone, I love you. Now, just picture with me the symbolism of the actual conception of Jesus. Now, I say this carefully, but I hope you get the point. Because we know that if a child is born, that child has been born because the parents have made love. The birth of a child is a result of lovemaking. Now, Jesus' uniqueness is that he had no earthly father who participated in his conception. The Holy Spirit did that. Now, can you see here, and I say this very, very gently because I don't want you to get me wrong. Jesus was born as a result of God coming upon Mary and Mary conceiving Jesus. Can you see we have a picture here of God making love to the world. I use that carefully, it's a symbolism, I'm not speaking literally, of course not, you know, I'm not, but I'm giving you the symbolism. Can you see that here the birth of Jesus represents the fact of God in his love reaching out to the world? This is the thing that we have to see. The reason for Christmas is God's love. If God hadn't been a God of love, there wouldn't have been a Christmas. A Christmas. If God was merely a God of righteousness and a, merely a God of justice, then the great white throne of judgment would have been enough. But you see, we have a God of love. And therefore, we have Christmas. Because God loves us, he's given us a way to escape the judgment at the great white throne. This picture of God saying to the world, I love you. Now, I felt especially burdened over one thing when I was preparing this part of the message. And it was this, and the Holy Spirit impressed it upon me. It was certainly for me, but it might be for others here as well. And it was this, that that also includes Arthur Scargill. God is yearning for a relationship with Arthur Scargill. That also includes those men who blew up the hotel at Brighton. It includes them. God in his love is yearning to be reconciled. 
If they don't get right, if they don't repent, they will be condemned to the lake of fire. But the point is God does not want that. God wants to be in fellowship with them. And Christmas is God saying to the IRA, I love you. It is God saying I love you to the PLO. Without in any way justifying what they're doing, we condemn it totally. But the point that I want to get across is that Christmas is God's I love you to everyone, not just the church, not just to what we might call good people, but to the hideous people as well, the murderers, what we will call the dregs of society. People who we think ought to be shot out of hand in the wrong spirit. If men have murdered, yes, they ought to die. Certainly, the Bible says that, life for a life. But the point is, I know sometimes that when I see these things that go on and hear the news, there's something inside me. There's a feeling of outrage, and that is right. That's from the Holy Spirit. But I also find creeping into me a personal vindictiveness against them. Can you see what I'm getting at here? God feels none of that, and God wants to refine us of that. Remember, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And it is to all men. God is not vindictive because He's just. Because He is the perfect judge, those who die in their sin will spend eternity in the lake of fire. But remember, none need go there at all. And God in His heart is yearning for each person walking the face of this earth. Whoever has walked it, whoever will walk it, God yearns that He be in a relationship of love towards them. So Christmas, firstly, is God's kiss, the X, at the bottom of the letter. I love you. Now there's another meaning that X has. Picture with me you've got a map. Now picture now that it's 150, 200 years old, it's a bit faded. And there are some palm trees on the map as well, and there's lots of coastline, and there's a little X on it. Now if I say X marks the spot, what does X mean there? Treasure. Treasure. X marks the spot. Treasure. Now isn't it remarkable, in Matthew 13, verse 44, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And he said that a wise man, on discovering that treasure, he, he can't afford that field, so he sells everything he's got to raise the money, and then he buys that field. This picture that Christmas is about a treasure and X marks the spot, we know exactly where that treasure is. Now in Luke 2, when Simeon comes onto the scene, he says two amazing things, we're going to look at it both. But he says, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and glory on the people Israel. Now here, Simeon is prophesying about Jesus. Simeon has been told, now here's faith. Simeon was told, perhaps years before, that he wasn't going to die until he'd seen his Messiah. And he was waiting all those years. Now there's hope for us. We have promises from God, don't we? We have them. Let's wait, like Simeon. And there was no way, remember, Simeon had been promised by God that he was going to see the Saviour, the Messiah of Israel, with his own eyes. Now, can you imagine him waking up one morning, maybe God told him five years ago, and it's still ten years before the event, and he wakes up one morning, looks out at his eyes, and says, oh, I can't see the promise coming any nearer, or perhaps it isn't going to come true then. Can you see what I'm getting at there? When we're expecting God to work the miracles for us that we're praying for, it's no use looking for preliminary signs. You won't find any preliminary signs. You won't find little things. When God works a miracle, it's sort of zap pow, it's just like that. You probably won't see it coming. And when we try to bolster our faith by, oh, does it look as if it might be a bit nearer now? That isn't true faith. Because true faith just says, well, look, God has done it. And in Hebrews, we're told that God is a God who brings everything out of nothing. Can you see that? So when God works a miracle, don't expect to see any lead up to it at all. All you're going to get is God's promise. And then in his time, out of nothing, it will come forth. That's why you can't see a miracle coming. And it's why it's silly to get discouraged when it isn't coming. It simply means it's not God's time yet. No problem, keep waiting. And Simeon's had this word from God that he's going to see the Messiah. And here he is holding 
the Messiah in his arms and he prophesies and it's amazing what he says and he speaks of Jesus in terms of being light now if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 6 and 7 Paul says for it is the God who said let light shine out of darkness who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now here, Paul is saying what the treasure of Christmas is. He's saying we have the treasure in earthen vessels. Who are the vessels? Us, earthen. Bit dirty, not very nice to look at. But the treasure is Christ. The light of God has shone in the face of Jesus Christ. Hence Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Because when we've seen Jesus, we've seen everything the Father is or ever can be. Because we see the Father, the, we see the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. When you look at Jesus in the face, you see the knowledge of the glory of God. Because Jesus is God. I and my Father are one. And this is the treasure that God has given to us. Jesus himself, the light of the world. This is the treasure. X marks the spot. In Ephesians 1 verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then in Romans 8 verse 32, he goes on to say this, because you might think, oh yeah, but that's only every spiritual blessing. And we've still got this incredible <coughs> idea, haven't we, that God only wants to bless us spiritually. Remember, I keep saying this, the Holy Spirit wants us to see us, God doesn't look down on us and say, oh yes, that's his spiritual bit, that's his physical bit, that's his mental bit. We are in the image of God, you see. And when God became a man in Jesus, which is what Christmas is all about, it forever blew to bits any notion that the material is somehow inferior to the spiritual. It's not at all. There is nothing wrong with the material at all. So when we're talking about spiritual blessings, we might think, oh yeah, but this is biblical backup for God only wants to deal with my sin and oh, all this thing. Well, right, listen to this, Romans 8 verse 22, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? Now that all things opens it right out, doesn't it? You see, it's not just the God who's interested in us spiritually. He's interested in our complete, comprehensive lives, spiritually, physically, intellectually, emotionally. Jesus is concerned for the whole lot. And then in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says this. He says, for all things are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Now that's what Paul says, that's amazing. He's saying, look, Christ belongs to God and you belong to Christ, and therefore all things are yours, because all things are God's. What is it the psalmist says? The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. So if the earth is the Lord's, who else does it belong to? It belongs to us. And what Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. There is nothing spiritual about the meek shall inherit the earth. You might have heard that old pun, someone written on the wall, the meek shall inherit the earth, and someone wrote underneath uh, if that's okay with the rest of you. There's nothing spiritual about the meek shall inherit the earth. We will inherit the earth literally. There will be, so be a day when for a thousand years Jesus shall rule on this planet personally. And who are going to be there overseeing with him? It's going to be you and I, the church. It's quite literal. We will inherit the earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And when Paul says all things are Christ's, therefore all things are yours, he means it. I'm trying to give you a scope of the treasure that God has actually given to us. The treasure is Jesus himself. But what we need to realise is that because we've got Jesus, we have got everything. Because Jesus created everything. Everything belongs to Jesus. Therefore, in Jesus, not only do we have the whole life of God, and the Lord has spoken to us about this, God has given us his very life. But not only do we have the life of Jesus, but we have the whole universe given to us as well, because it 
belongs to God. And Paul says in Romans that the whole creation is groaning, is waiting, is longing for the revelation of the sons of God. Can you see that? The whole of creation is yearning in travail, simply waiting until the day when you and I, the church of Jesus Christ, is revealed, glorified with Jesus. This whole universe belongs to us. This is incredible. And Paul says, look, he's given you Jesus. Therefore, is there anything that he won't give you? Now, we know that Jesus is a king, don't we? And we know through past history that there are times when kings are very, very generous. And one of the ways that a king bestowed a love gift on someone, say he fell in love with a neighbouring queen or something like that, and he wanted to express his love in the best way that he could, what that king would do is he would give us a gift, a whole load of his treasure. Unimaginable wealth he would give his treasure. Now remember, the best in men is always outdone by God to the nth degree. Because what God has done, yeah, sure, he's given us treasure. But it's not as if God has says, right, here's all my treasure, you can have my treasure. You see, the king who gives his treasure away, he's still got his palace, he's still got his authority, he's still got all the men who serve him, he's still got wealth. But what God says, he says, I love you so much, I'm not just going to give you my treasure, I am going to give you my whole kingdom. The king loved us so much that he hasn't given us a bit of his treasure. He has given us the whole lot, the treasure and the kingdom as well. Luke 12 verse 32, the words of Jesus. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Can you get an idea of exactly what Christmas is meaning? The sheer magnitude of what we're talking about. We have Jesus, who is the very life of God, living in us. But apart from that, we have the whole universe. And we know that one day we are going to reign with Christ. Human kings and despots tend to hang on to their power as much as they can. That we're told that when Jesus came to earth, that he didn't, he didn't grasp on to the fact that he was divine, did it? He let it go. He didn't hang on to it, saying, well, you know, I'm equal with God, so I'm going to grasp at it. He let it go freely. And you might think, well, okay, he let it go freely, but he's going to have that back one day. Well, do you know what the gospel is? If we're going to reign with Christ, which is exactly what the Bible says we're going to do, Jesus will never have it back. Can you see God even shares his authority with us. And the beautiful thing is that we can have his authority now to a certain extent. But when we're glorified, because we're perfect, God can share even his authority with us fully and completely because we'll be trustworthy. We won't have any wrong, sinful motives of our own. So can you see what this means? That X marks the spot. Treasure. God has given himself Yes. Picture it, God has got two things to give. All of us, I've, I've got two things to give. There's me, and there's everything I own. That's all I have to give. But there's two bits, alright? Now God has done precisely that. He's given us Himself. But He's given us everything He owns. The universe. Paul says, all things are yours. Now that's quite a gift, isn't it? And that's what Christmas is all about. And you see, if Christmas is God saying, I love you, then can you see that God will... Um, John says, let us not love in word only, but in deed and in truth. And God doesn't love in word only. He doesn't just say, I love you. He backs that up by giving us literally everything he is and everything he has. You can't back up a statement, I love you, more than that. And then there's a third thing that a cross is all about. Right, well if you were like me at school, you'll certainly remember this one. I can remember in certain books I had at school that often all the way down the page would be little crosses, particularly after sons. What does that mean? Oh, wrong. 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 Now this is the other aspect of what Christmas is all about. Remember, the reason for Christmas is that Jesus came to be a saviour. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Therefore, we have to face up afresh.
For unbelievers, there comes a day when they have to face it for the first time. But thence after with us, we have to continuously face it. That the reason Jesus came was because we are wrong. And one of the important things to realise, it's not just the question that we do wrong things. We are wrong. Picture it like this. Picture you've got a piece of paper and it's got ink blotches all over it and the ink blotches are spoiling it. Well, the ink blotches are our sins. But God is not particularly after the ink blotches on the paper. He's after the bottle of ink. Can you see that? We sin because we are sinners. We are wrong ourselves. We're shot through with this tendency to sin and to evil. And there's nothing in our own strength we can do about it. We are wrong. Now again, back to Simeon in Luke 2. And in verses 34 to 35, he says this, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is spoken against. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And that was prophetic. Uh, let me just say that possibly if we tested that prophecy, would we thought it was a bit negative and failed it? I wonder. You see? That's just the point, isn't it? Because, I mean, this was simply God foretelling what was going to be true. Yeah, a soul did pierce Mary's own soul. She watched her son taken from her. It's a terrible thing for Mary. Um, and thoughts out of many hearts may be revealed. Now this is why we've already spoken that God's gift to us is Jesus plus his whole kingdom, the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because obviously there is only one way to enter into that kingdom, and it is through repentance. It's realising that we cannot enter that kingdom on any merit that we have. It's seen purely that we must rely totally, 100% on the mercy of God. We have nothing to add to that. We receive 100% mercy or we're out. You don't get into the kingdom on 50% mercy and 50% of what you've done. You don't even get into the kingdom on 99% mercy and 1% of what you've done. We get in 100% on the basis of God's mercy in Jesus. And yet, obviously, when the Son of God becomes flesh, when God himself walks amongst us as a man, you will always have this, the fact that the thoughts out of many hearts may be revealed. Remember the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. Now that word convict can also be convince. He will convince the world of sin. Now if you're trying to convince somebody, you're trying to persuade them as to the truth of something they don't as yet accept. Now what the Holy Spirit and Jesus do together is this. We have evil unbelieving hearts. We spoke about this last month. And the thing about the seriousness of the deceitfulness of our hearts isn't just that we deceive each other, but we deceive ourselves. In our own strength, we are honestly incapable of seeing any sin that we may be guilty of. We just can't see it because of our self-righteousness. What we may do, we may develop inferiority complexes and go around bemoaning sins we haven't got. And that itself is a sin. But no way can we, on the basis of our own thinking, work out that we're sinners. It's just, you know, it can't be done. It's something that the Holy Spirit has to do because of the stubbornness of our own. We may acknowledge that there are things a bit wrong with us. We may acknowledge that we're, we're a bit substandard <coughs> here and there. But no way would we recognise that our righteousness to God is as filthy rags. It's something that we need convincing of. We need to be persuaded of it. We need to be convicted of it. And so the way that Jesus and the Holy Spirit work together, and this is what Christmas is all about, is you see, they so manipulate things that the true intentions and thoughts of your heart are revealed. And you begin to see the truth about yourself. And it gets presented to you so powerfully that whereas you can be stubborn and deny it if you like, the point is you know in your heart that you're cornered, that the truth about you is coming out. 
If you turn to Matthew, let's see a very, very powerful example of this in regards to the birth of Jesus. See that as soon as Jesus was born, as soon as the Son of God came upon the planet Earth in human form, this ministry of the Holy Spirit and Jesus together revealing sin began to happen. And of course, it's in regards to Herod. As soon as Jesus is born, Herod shows his true colours. Herod begins to act in a manner logical of everything that he is. And you remember the slaying of the firstborn. Thousands of innocent children, babies, put to death. Now can you see the way that his sin was drawn out in the open? Can you see the way that Herod exposed himself for the Hitler figure that he really was? Can you see immediately Satan launches an attack on what God's doing? And God overrules this all. And what he does is he simply uses the devil to expose the sin that he wants people to recognise. Now, to our knowledge, Herod didn't repent, as far as we know. He might have done on his deathbed. I really don't know. But the point was, can you see what a powerful demonstration this ruler had of his capability of sin? Because as soon as Jesus was born, because he was unrepentant, he, if, if you actually see in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. See, when he heard about the birth of Jesus and, and the coming of a new... He was troubled, you see. He wasn't interested... Well, is, is this good? Is this what God wants? He was trying, I'm king. I don't want to be dislodged, you see. And his immediate reaction was to harden his heart. Now, once he did that, Satan could use him. Satan had a foothold in his life. And so Satan attacks the king of kings. Satan moves to try and kill Jesus through Herod. Completely fails because Joseph is warned in a dream and they escape. Of course they escape. Jesus' time hadn't come yet. But can you see Satan moves to attack what God has done? Fails abysmally and then reveals all his agents. Now can you see what I mean? Imagine Satan as a spy and he's got his spy network. And it all depends on his agents being absolutely secret. Well, he makes a move. It's a strategic disaster. And as a result of that, all his spies have now got neon signs on their heads. I'm a spy and I'm here. Can you see it? It's revealed. Sin and the hold that Satan has and where Satan is lurking is revealed. It's brought to light. And also what Simeon said about the fact that, um, that, the, that uh, some will be broken, are breaking down. Remember that Jesus, we're told, was a stumbling block. And this stumbling block has two effects. You can kind of fall over it and, and pick yourself up and say, hey, I fell down, what's the trouble? Why did I fall? And then you can examine the stone and think, hey, God's trying to show me something. Or if you harden your heart, you'll be shattered to pieces. Absolutely shattered to pieces. Jesus is a stumbling block. He breaks. Remember when Jeremiah was called to bring God's word to his people, his ministry it was to build up and to encourage, but it was to tear down and to destroy. Now this isn't God being vindictive. This is God's mercy. Because if we are to come into the blessings of the kingdom of heaven, we must first come to repentance of the fact that we are under the kingdom of Satan. And the only way to get into the kingdom of God is to acknowledge that you're a subject and a slave of Satan. And that's a tough thing to do, isn't it? That goes at your pride. And so God will tear you down. He'll break you down. He does it in our own lives, even as we continue on in following the Lord. He knows all the parts of us that aren't surrendered yet. And lovingly and gently but firmly, He tears them down. He brings them to nothing. He humbles us so that we can be exalted. There's something else that's rather lovely about this whole thing in Herod as well. This is something the Lord spoke to me about a few years ago. It was really rather nice. It's something about the kings, the magi, who are following their star. And what happens is that Herod gets in touch with them. And he says, hey, I want your help. Because there's a king been born. And I want to go and worship him, you see. I really want to go and worship him. And I know that you people know where he is. And as soon as you've found him, I want you to come back to me. And I want you to tell me where he is so I too can go and worship. Now here you have some people of God being drawn by the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit draws people to Jesus. You see, And the wise men are being drawn to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And Satan, through Herod, begins to work to deceive them. Alright? 
In fact, the deception actually catches on. Because these men say, sure, right, okay, as soon as we found him, we'll come back to you. But of course, what happens is that the Holy Spirit warns them that it's a trick. So the deception doesn't take, and they go home a different way. But the thing to notice is this, they go in to Herod, and Herod lays this on them. All lies, sounds good, but all lies. And it says, and then they leave, and it says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, what did, why did they rejoice exceedingly when they saw the star again? I'll tell you. Because while they were with Herod, they couldn't see the star. Now, they couldn't turn their eyes upon Jesus at this point. He'd only just been born. But can you see the star here is representing, it's a symbol of Jesus himself. Now, what I find many times, and what you will find, often in hindsight, is that you realise that, hey, those things that were going through my mind, they depressed me. They, I wasn't seeing Jesus in it. And you realise it's because you've been entered, you've been a guest of the devil. Herod has invited you to help him. And you've taken the bait. And you've been gullible. And then as soon as you turn away, as soon as you leave Herod, again you can see the star. Again you can see Jesus. And a number of times, sometimes this can happen daily to me, you just realise that you're thinking along a way that's getting, you know, you're getting negative. You're getting a bit down. Things becoming a little bit black and, and you start feeling sorry for yourself. Now that's the way you can really know when Satan's had you. Because he's then got you sinning, you see? And so, at least at the point, I mean, when you start getting negative, that should be enough for us. Uh, the Lord hasn't got me all the way. I usually clip when I realise I'm feeling sorry for myself, when I actually repent. But the point is that you realise that you're not looking at Jesus anymore, you see? You're in Herod's court. You're being deceived by the devil. And the beautiful thing is that even though you can't see Jesus at that point, he's just outside the door. So leave Satan's presence and go back out and you'll see the star again. And when you do, you, like the wise men, will have joy again. Can you see that? When you've been down one of Satan's blind alleys, it might be, what if? Many of Satan's deceptions begin, what if? Brackets, God lets you down, you see. And, and, and you start thinking about it, you see. But you're going down a blind alley, you're being deceived, you're in Herod's call. Get out of there, turn your back on it, and again, you'll see the star. So we can see that, yeah, Jesus has come, and Christmas is all about revealing sin. Jesus has come to convince us, to persuade us that we're sinners. And he does this by luring us, enticing us. Not tempting us to sin. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that Jesus said, now, now come on, uh, fornication, I'm going to prove to you that you're a sinner, I'm going to tempt you to fornicate. No, that's not how Jesus does it at all. Jesus simply allows Satan to get on with his work. Because Jesus knows that then as soon as we're tempted, our evil natures will give birth to sin. And then Jesus can just, hey, look, you've sinned. And now you can't deny it. And if we keep denying it, he'll kind of keep manoeuvring us until it gets a little bit more serious, you see. And I've often said it before, that if, if, if you don't let God deal with you in the closet, he'll do it in the dining room, you see. And Jesus always, whether it's in unbelievers to bring them to repentance for the first time, or we, his people, Jesus is working to reveal our sin, to show it to us, if necessary, to other people, so they can, uh, a word in your ear, brother. And he reveals it to persuade us of it so that we can repent. So here we have what Christmas is all about. It's not unknown. It's fully revealed. It's God saying, I love you. It's God saying, I've given you treasure. I've given you everything I've got, everything I am in Jesus and the whole universe because he made it, it's yours as well. But it is God saying, you're wrong. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And there's one other little addenda to this that I'd like to add, because, I mean, sometimes I know that I've spent a lot of time thinking, well, you know, I mean, in, in, in the first few years of being a Christian, I found that every year I, I kept thinking, well, Christmas will mean more to me now, and every year it meant less. And this started to happen so regularly that I came to the conclusion that, you know, it probably wasn't me rebelling and being sinful, but it's probably more something that God was doing, you see. I don't fully understand how I relate to Christmas yet. I know what it's about, um, but I just feel like you know, I'm getting a hint from the Lord about how it is that he wants us to view it. Because we think, well, I mean, Christmas, 
yeah, we celebrate the birth of Christ and we give presents to each other. We think, how can we reconcile that with all the grub we, you know, sort of maybe watching a good film on the telly and things. And we tend to, to veer from one extreme to another. Now, obviously, you could have a really worldly Christmas that Jesus was nothing to do with and it wouldn't please him at all. It wouldn't bring him any joy whatsoever. But on the other hand, you could go all out for a really super spiritual Christmas. And even if you don't hate it, everyone else in the house will. You know, all prayer and frowning as soon as the box goes on. And, and sort of, did you have a second mince pie, brother? You know, this kind of thing. And, and we tend to waver between these extremes. I mean, for years I've been trying to find out how you reconcile them. Where does the balance come in? Now, I shared with you probably about a year ago that once I was sitting there in that chair and I just said to the Lord, I said, Lord, what is worship? And immediately the Holy Spirit, I mean, Robert was standing here jumping up and down with his maracas and things like that, and the Holy Spirit immediately spoke right back to me, one of those times when it's quite audible, and he said, it's a party. Now, I don't need the Holy Spirit to speak to me again to tell me what Christmas is. Christmas is Jesus' birthday party. And one of the things that, I mean, if I had a birthday party, January the 2nd, the day after the next time I'm here, everybody, <laughs> if I would have a birthday party and you all came to my party to celebrate my party, I wouldn't expect you to be standing around in groups talking about me all day. Do you see what I mean? I would want you, you're celebrating my birthday, I will want you to have fun. Now, obviously, there will be ways that some might consider fun which are offensive to God and must be avoided, obviously. But the point is, I would want you to enjoy yourselves. And the very enjoyment being that you're celebrating my birthday and I'm entertaining you. I mean, normally, it's the person who has the birthday who has the party. Can you see what I mean? Unless you hire a hall out, usually, if it's somebody's birthday, the party will be at their house. You, you gather people around you for your birthday. And you say, come on, let's have a good time. And if everyone stood around talking about you, after a couple of hours, you'd be so bored with it. You see, because you think, well, hey, no one's, you know, they're just standing around in, talking about me. Say, hey, I want you to have fun. Or, oh, but we don't want to upset you. I think we'll just talk about you a bit more, you see. <laughs> now, in exactly the same way, if we're going to celebrate Jesus' birthday, can you see that not only does he not object to us having good, clean fun, I'm not talking about anything irreverent. I'm not talking about what Frankie goes to Hollywood, that bloke in the group said about it's just for getting drunk. I'm not talking about that at all. But I'm talking about good, honest, clean fun. Not only does Jesus not mind us having it, but secondly, he wants us to have it. And thirdly, he'll be there having it with us. And I think that's the lovely thing about it. Because wouldn't it be a boring birthday? If it's your birthday, you had a birthday party, and everyone was joining in the fun except you. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Now, Christmas Day is the Father throwing a party for Jesus. Are you getting what I'm saying? It helps to bring a balance, doesn't it? We can have a good time. I'm not talking about a 24-hour round of so much fun, frolics, food, and whatever it is that we don't think about it from one end of the day to another. We want to remember that it is Jesus' birthday. I'm even toying with the idea, and maybe the Holy Spirit will have to sort of release me a little bit more for this, but I would like Christmas Day for Blinge and I to get up and sing Happy Birthday to Jesus. Now, I can't think of any reason why that's irreverent. It's not. There's nothing in the Bible that says that's irreverent, and yet there's something inside me that just wants to test that very carefully. And I think it's, I think it's my past programming. I think it's a super spirituality rearing its head. Can you see what I'm saying? It is Jesus' birthday party at Christmas. Let us celebrate Christmas. It's Jesus' birthday. He'll be there. Let's really honour him because he's the guest. He's the one that we're honouring. And let's have a good time and enjoy ourselves with Jesus. And to remember as well that he will enjoy himself with us. That's, that's the important thing. I find it hard to conceive of this. God enjoying me. It's very difficult for me to understand. I have a job emotionally appreciating that, but at least I'm realising that it's true. 
And that helps because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So understand that. If you have a good time celebrating Jesus' birthday, in a righteous way, I'm not talking about license, but if you have a good time celebrating Jesus' birthday at his party, he'll have a good time as well and he'll bless him equally as much as it blesses us. Right. Amen. Thank you.